0: Welcome to What's Working in Washington. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Today, the scientists who change lives. And for actually for somebody that's actually
1: severely disabled, for example, somebody that's a quadriplegic, you know, just the ability to participate in something like this is really meaningful and can really have a big impact, even though it's a temporary
0: thing. The cutting edge of connecting man and machine is being defined and, and pushed through right here in the D.C. region. We're joined by Mike McLaughlin. He's Chief Engineer for Research and Exploratory Development at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, one of the most entrepreneurial scientists I've ever met. <laughs> Mike, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here, and uh, I hope I can live up to the uh, introduction. Sharing with our audience, what are you up to right now? I find it very interesting.
1: Yeah, so for, well, probably for about the past, Eight or so years, I've been working with DARPA very closely to develop uh, brain-computer interfaces for controlling advanced prosthetics. So, so this was initially created for for people that had lost use of an arm, either through amputation or paralysis, to enable them to move an arm, a prosthetic arm, or a robotic arm, just like they would their natural arm. And really, the only way to do that is you got to really tap into the brain, right? Because you think about all the things that you can do with your your hand, you know, wiggle your fingers and so forth. Now think about picking up an Xbox controller and controlling a robot to play the piano, right? You, you couldn't do it, but our brains do it all the time. And so the real key here was to really figure out how to make that connection between the, the brain and the machine in a way that you can control very much like you do your natural
0: hand. I was actually lucky enough to be with you where at one moment where you had a double amputee put on two of these arms you developed at APL and He was able to manipulate them it was an incredibly powerful moment i've had the opportunity
1: really the good fortune to see that multiple times as somebody that either through paralysis or amputation had lost lost the ability to use a limb and to give that back to them in some way even though right now it's you know it's research and we can only do it for a limited time it's a really powerful thing and that's really the the story behind all this is really is that human connection right so the technology is really cool you know, we can take signals from the brain either through tapping into the brain itself or through the nerves that were left after an amputation, say in the residual arm, and we can tap into those and let people move the arm and so forth. And that's all, all great. But when you talk to the people that actually do this, uh, many of them will say that that it's actually like you know, it's not a robotic arm they're controlling; it's actually an extension of themselves. And that's kind of really one of the things that's really intrigued me about this whole effort, is the ability for the brain to kind of make that connection. The
0: barrier is it's breaking down. It's starting to break down, right. And then the time that I've been following this research and the work that you and your colleagues have been doing at APL, it, it's moved from actually direct connection through the skull and the brain. You're, you're now moving away from that, right? Yeah. So,
1: you know, right now to, to interface with the, the brain, uh, we do that in a clinical setting. So it actually requires surgery and the Plantation of, of electrodes. And if you really want to think about scaling this and, and moving it into everyday life, then you really have to start thinking about how do I do this in a way that's not so invasive. And so we're spending a lot of time right now thinking about how do we do this non-invasively. You've
0: been involved in this for a while. APL does billion dollars a year or more of research and development in all these different areas. How do you react to um, the observation that so much of the money that the the military spends doesn't have any particular application to consumers or people other than uh, the military. So my
1: personal opinion is that's a very short term view. So if you think about, you know, okay, everybody knows about the internet and DARPA creating that. Satellite navigation was created by by the military. Advanced electronics uh, were developed by the the military. So so what the military does because it has such needs to really be on the front of technologies. They will invest in things much earlier than the commercial sector will. Okay? When there's not necessarily an economic payoff. So when DARPA started in investing in brain computer interfaces, you know, it wasn't really clear that there was a sustainable business model here or anything. And now you have people jumping into it. So Elon Musk has jumped into it and Brian Johnson and and Facebook is is now making an entry into this because they're starting to see the commercial potential for this. But DARPA started investing in this in the late 1990s. Yeah. So we're only beginning to start to see the the fruits of that investment
0: now. How cool is, is it that how your work you know affects individuals? I mean, you must be seeing people's lives just change for the better. I don't know how many scientists actually get the chance to see that happen.
1: Yeah, it is something I consider myself very, on one level, very fortunate, right, to be able to, to see that and work with some really incredible people, uh, both in terms of the technology development side, but as, as well as the individuals with amputation or paralysis that we've been work, working with. One of the things that, that we still have to achieve is that right now we can bring people into the laboratory and they can, you know, use these things and it's a great experience for them. But at the end of the day, when they leave the laboratory, they leave without it. And so one of my real goals over the next few years, really, is to start to get this out of the laboratory so people can, you know, really start to to work with this technology in the home. Because that's where we're really going to learn. You know, you bring people into the lab and, you, you know, you have them do things and, you know, you measure things and that's all good. But when they take it into their house and... You know, they're saying, "Well, on Saturday morning, I was trying to do something with a lawnmower, and this, you know, that's where you really learn." And so that's one of the things that really
0: excites me going into the future here. It must be really hard when you, because it's 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 research. You have to take it back right now. That must it be is.
1: Tough. It is. But you know, again, it's an incredible group of people we work with, and and so they really look at themselves as pioneers. You know, they mm-hmm. know that you know they're doing this, and they may not personally benefit from it but you know they're hoping that down the road others will. And for actually for somebody that's actually severely disabled, for example, somebody that's a quadriplegic, you know, just the ability to participate in something like this is really meaningful and can really have a, a a big impact even though it's a temporary thing. So some of our, you know, one of our earlier patients, for example, she goes, you know, she's not in the program anymore, but she goes around and does speaking engagements
0: and tells people about her, her experience and was so it was a really it was a really a great thing for her. When I introduced you earlier, I described you as one of the most entrepreneurial scientists I know. I and mean, I think that the way that you've gone about your, your life here in D.C., I, I, I'd like to see as many Michael Glockens as possible in the region. Are there, are there folks hidden from our view? And what do we have to do to make sure that everybody like you at APL and other places around the town have the support necessary to pursue their, their vision and their passions about their projects?
1: Yeah, so once again, I appreciate the the compliment, but I don't really see myself as that unique. Uh, I mean, I think there are a lot of other people in this community that given, you know, the the opportunity, and I was very fortunate to have the opportunity with DARPA to kind of pursue some of these things. So I think it's really structural. Um, At APL, we just recently uh, signed an agreement with Facebook, or we're working with them uh, with the goal of developing a non-invasive brain-computer interface for uh, essentially thought-to-text, so you can type 100 words per minute with a brain-computer interface. Let me go back. So, so I remember when I started my career in the 1980s, right? So, if the government was going to develop, say, a new sonar system, inevitably they would develop a new microprocessor with it. And then, of course, by the time that system actually came out, that Microsoft, that processor was, you know, five. Generations behind, you know what was available, and so the government got smart and said, you know, hey, we really need to leverage commercial industry to, you know, use the advancements they're making for these large commercial applications. And I think we see a similar thing going on now when we look at, you know, the importance of biomedical technologies, information technologies. Uh, you, know, so, you know, we've had a lot of cyber incidents, and it's all been driven by, you know, commercial interest in this. The government is utilizing. A, and so I think we have to think more and more about those kinds of kinds of relationships.
0: And, and we've done it in the past, and I think we
1: can do it in the future.
0: Well, Mike, thanks very much for taking time and, and updating us on what you're up to. Check out what's going on at the Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. There's really, really interesting cutting-edge research being done every day by people like our guest Mike McLaughlin. Thanks for taking the time. Okay, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What's Working in Washington. A special thanks to our sponsor, Eagle Bank. How do you get to be number one in the D.C. area? Eagle Bank did it by putting relationships first. They're flexible, involved, responsive, strong, and trusted. Eagle Bank's goal is your success. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan. Our online contributors are Michael Hoffman, Barbara Ulrich, and Candace Pye. Music provided by two D.C. region bands, two-car living room, and the Sunbathers. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening.